Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book 9, Chapter 1. Delirium. Claude Frollo was no longer in Notre Dame when his adopted son so abruptly cut the fatal knot in which the wretched archdeacon had caught the gypsy and was himself caught. Returning to the sacristy, he had snatched off his alb, cope, and stole, flung them all into the hands of the amazed sacristan, fled through the private door of the cloisters, ordered a boatman of the terrain to set him over to the left bank of the Seine, and plunged in among the hilly streets of the university, not knowing whither he went, meeting at every turn bands of men and women hastening gaily towards the Pont Saint-Michel in the hope that they might yet be in time to see the witch hanged. Pale, haggard, more bewildered, blinder and fiercer than a night-bird let loose in broad daylight and pursued by a troop of boys. He no longer knew where he was, what he did, whether he was dreaming or awake. He went on, he walked, he ran, taking any street at haphazard, but still urged forward by the Place de Greve, the horrible Place de Greve, which he vaguely felt behind him. In this way he passed the Montagne saint Genevieve and finally left the town by the Port Saint-Victor. He continued to flee as long as he could see, on turning, the ring of towers around the university and the scattered houses of the suburb. But when at last a ridge completely hid that odious Paris, when he could imagine himself a hundred leagues away in the fields, in a desert, he paused and it seemed as if he breathed again. Then frightful thoughts crowded upon him. Once more he saw into his soul as clear as day, and he shuddered at the sight. He thought of the unhappy girl who had destroyed him, and whom he had destroyed. He cast a despairing glance at the doubly crooked path along which fate had led their destinies up to the meeting point where it had pitilessly dashed them against each other. He thought of the folly of eternal vows, of the vanity of chastity, science, religion, virtue, and the uselessness of God. He indulged in evil thoughts to his heart's content, and as he yielded to them he felt himself giving way to satanic laughter. And as he thus searched his soul, when he saw how large a space nature had reserved therein for the passions, he sneered more bitterly still. He stirred up all the hatred and malice from the very depths of his heart, and he recognized, with the cold gaze of a physician studying his patient, that this malice was nothing but love perverted, that love, the source of all virtue in man, turned to horrible things in the heart of a priest and that a man formed like him, when he became a priest, became a demon. Then he laughed fearfully, and all at once he again turned pale, as he considered the most forbidding side of his fatal passion, of that corrosive, venomous, malignant, implacable love, which led but to the gallows for one, to hell for the other. She condemned, he damned. And then he laughed anew as he reflected that Phoebus was alive, that after all the captain lived, was light-hearted and content, 
had finer uniforms than ever, a new sweetheart whom he brought to see the old one hanged. His sneers were redoubled when he reflected that, of all the living beings whose death he had desired, the gypsy girl, the only creature whom he did not hate, was the only one who had not escaped him. Then, from the captain, his mind wandered to the mob, and he was overcome with jealousy of an unheard-of kind. He thought that the mob, too, the entire mob, had had before their eyes the woman whom he loved, in her shift, almost naked. He writhed as he thought that this woman, whose form, half seen by him alone in darkness, would have afforded him supreme delight, had been exposed in broad daylight at high noon to an entire multitude clad as for a night of pleasure. He wept with rage, picturing to himself the foul eyes which had reveled in that scanty covering, and that that lovely girl, that virgin lily, that cup of modesty and delight to which he dared not place his lips without trembling, had been made common property." a vessel from which the vilest rabble of Paris, thieves, beggars, and lackeys, had come to quaff together a shameless, impure, and depraved pleasure. And when he strove to picture the bliss which he might have found upon earth if she had not been a gypsy, and he had not been a priest, if Phoebus had never lived, and if she had loved him— when he imagined the life of peace and love which might have been possible for him also, when he thought that there were even at that very instant here and there on the earth happy couples lost in long talks beneath orange trees, on the border of streams, beneath a setting sun or a starry heaven, and that, had God so willed, he might have formed with her one of those blessed couples. His heart melted within him, in tenderness and despair. Oh, she! It is she! She, the one idea which returned ever and again, torturing him, turning his brain, gnawing his vitals. He regretted nothing, repented nothing. All that he had done, he was ready to do again. He preferred to see her in the hangman's hands rather than in the captain's arms. But he suffered. He suffered so intensely that at times he tore out his hair by handfuls to see if it had not turned white with anguish. There was one moment among the rest when it occurred to him that this was possibly the minute when the hideous chain which he had seen that morning was drawing its iron noose closer and ever closer around that slender, graceful neck. This idea made the perspiration start from every pore. There was another moment when, while laughing devilishly at himself, he pictured, at one and the same time, Esmeralda as he had first seen her, alert, heedless, happy, gaily dressed, dancing, winged, and harmonious, and Esmeralda as he had last seen her, in her shift, with the rope about her neck, slowly approaching with her bare feet the cruel gallows. And this double picture was so vivid that he uttered a terrible cry. While this whirlwind of despair overwhelmed, crushed, broke, 
bent, and uprooted everything in his soul, he considered the scene around him. At his feet some hens were pecking and scratching among the bushes. Enameled beetles crawled in the sun. Above his head groups of dappled gray clouds sailed over the blue sky. In the horizon the spire of the Abbey of St. Victor cut the curve of the hill with its slated obelisk and the miller of the Boutcopeau whistled as he watched the busy wheels of his mill go round. All this active, industrious, tranquil life, reproduced around him in a thousand forms, hurt him. He again tried to escape. Thus he ran through the fields until nightfall. This flight from nature, life, himself, man, God, everything— lasted the entire day. Sometimes he threw himself face downwards upon the earth, and tore up the young corn with his nails. Sometimes he paused in some deserted village street. And his thoughts were so unendurable that he seized his head in both hands, and tried to snatch it from his shoulders, that he might dash it to pieces upon the ground. Towards sunset he examined himself anew, and found that he was almost mad. The tempest which had been raging within him from the instant that he lost all hope and will to save the gypsy girl had not left a single sane idea, a single sound thought, in his brain. His reason was laid low by it, and was almost wholly destroyed by it. His mind retained but two distinct images—Esmeralda and the scaffold— all else was black. Those two closely connected images presented a frightful group, and the more he fixed upon them such power of attention and intellect as he still retained, the more they seemed to grow, by a fantastic progression, the one in grace, charm, beauty, light, the other in horror, so that at last Esmeralda appeared to him as a star, the gibbet as an enormous fleshless arm. It was a remarkable thing that in spite of all this torment he never seriously thought of suicide. The wretch was so constituted. He clung to life. Perhaps he really saw hell lurking in the background. Meantime, the day continued to decline. That spark of life which still burned within him dreamed dimly of returning home. He fancied himself remote from Paris, but on examination he discovered that he had merely made the circuit of the university. The spire of Saint-Sulpice and the three lofty pinnacles of Saint-Germain-des-Prés rose above the horizon on his right. He proceeded in that direction. When he heard the challenge of the abbot's men-at-arms around the battlemented walls of Saint-Germain, he turned aside, took a footpath which he saw between the abbey mill and the lazaretto of the suburb, and in a few moments found himself at the edge of the pré aux clairs This meadow was famous for the riots going on there continually, day and night. It was the hydra-headed monster of the poor monks of Saint-Germain. The archdeacon dreaded meeting someone there. He was afraid of any human face. 
he had shunned the university and the village of Saint-Germain. He was determined not to enter the city streets any earlier than he could help. He skirted the pré aux Claire, took the deserted path dividing it from the Dieu-Neuf, and at last reached the bank of the river. There he found a boatman, who, for a few farthings, rowed him up the Seine as far as the city, where he landed him on that strip of wasteland where the reader has already seen Gringoire indulging in a reverie, and which extended beyond the king's gardens, parallel with the island of the Passeur aux Vaches. The monotonous rocking of the boat and the ripple of the water had somewhat stupefied the unhappy Claude. When the boatman had gone, he stood upon the shore in a dazed condition, staring straight forward, and seeing everything in a sort of luminous mist which seemed to dance before his eyes. The fatigue of great grief often produces this effect upon the brain. The sun had set behind the tall Tour de Nel. It was twilight. The sky was silvery. The water in the river was silvery, too. Between these two silver whites, the left bank of the Seine, upon which his eyes were riveted, stretched its somber length, and, tapering in the distance, faded away at last among the hazes of the horizon in the shape of a black spire. It was covered with houses, whose dark outlines only were visible, cast in strong relief against the bright background of cloud and water. Here and there windows began to glow, like live embers. The vast black obelisk, thus detached between the two white masses of sky and river, the latter very broad just here, produced a strange effect on Don Claude, such as might be felt by a man lying flat on his back at the foot of the Strasbourg Cathedral, and gazing up at the huge spire piercing the twilight shadows over his head. Only here, Claude was standing, and the obelisk lying low. But as the river, by reflecting the sky, prolonged the abyss beneath, the vast promontory seemed to shoot into space as boldly as any cathedral spire, and the impression produced was the same. The impression was made even stronger and more singular by the fact that it was indeed the Strasbourg steeple, but the Strasbourg steeple two leagues high, something unheard of, gigantic, immeasurable, a structure such as no human eye ever beheld, a tower of Babel. The chimneys of the houses, the battlements of the wall, the carved gables of the roofs, the spire of the Augustine Monastery, the Tour de Nel, all these projections which marred the outline of the colossal obelisk, added to the illusion by grotesquely counterfeiting to the eye the indentations of some rich and fantastic carving. Claude, in the state of hallucination in which he then was, believed that he saw, saw with his bodily eyes, the pinnacles of hell. The countless lights scattered from end to end of the awful tower appeared to him like so many doors leading to the vast furnace within. The voices and the sounds which arose from it, like so many shrieks and groans. Then he was terrified. He clapped his hands to his ears that he might not hear them, turned his back that he might not see, 
and hastened away from the fearful vision. But the vision was within him. When he once more entered the city streets, the passing people elbowing each other in the light of the shop windows affected him like the never-ending coming and going of specters. There were strange noises in his ears. Extraordinary images troubled his senses. He saw neither houses, nor pavement, nor chariots, nor men and women, but a chaos of indeterminate objects which melted into one another. At the corner of the Rue de la Barillerie, there was a grocer's shop, the sloping roof of which was, according to immemorial custom, hung with tin hoops, from each of which was suspended a circle of wooden candles, which clattered and clashed in the wind like castanets. He fancied he heard the heap of skeletons at Montfaucon knocking their bones against one another in the darkness. Oh, he muttered, the night wind dashes them together and mingles the sound of their chains with the rattle of their bones. Perhaps she too is there among them. Bewildered and distracted, he knew not where he went. After walking a few steps, he found himself upon the Pont Saint-Michel. There was a light at the window of a room on the ground floor. He went up to it. Through a cracked pane, he saw a dirty room, which roused a vague memory in his brain. In this room, dimly lighted by a small lamp, there was a fresh, fair-haired, merry-faced youth, who with loud bursts of laughter kissed a gaudily-dressed girl. And near the lamp sat an old woman, spinning and singing in a cracked voice. As the young man occasionally ceased laughing, fragments of the old woman's song reached the priest. It was something unintelligible and frightful. Bark, Grev, growl, Grev, spin, spin my spindle brave, for the hangman spin a cord, and he whistles in the prison yard. Bark, Grev, growl, Grev. The lovely hempen cord forevermore, so from E.C. even to Vanvre's shore, hemp and never of corn a grain. No thief will ever steal for gain the lovely hempen cord. Growl, Grev, bark, Grev, to see the wanton and the knave hanging on the gallows high. Every window is an eye. Growl, Grev, bark, Grev. Hereupon the young man laughed and caressed the girl. The old woman was La Falloordel. The girl was a woman of the town. The young man was his brother, Jeanne. He continued to gaze. As well this sight as another. He saw Jeanne go to a window at the back of the room, open it, cast a glance at the quay, where countless lighted windows gleamed in the distance, and he heard him say, as he closed the window, By my soul, it is night already. The citizens have lighted their candles, and the good God his stars. Then Jeanne went back to the girl and broke a bottle which stood on the table, exclaiming, Empty already, by Jove, and I have no more money. Isabeau, my love, I shall never feel content with Jupiter until he turns your two white breasts into two black bottles, whence I may suck bone wine night and day. This witticism made the girl laugh, 
and Jeanne sallied forth. Dom Claude had barely time to throw himself on the ground, lest he should be encountered, looked in the face, and recognized by his brother. Luckily, the street was dark, and the student was drunk. However, he noticed the archdeacon lying on the pavement in the mire. "'Ho, ho,' said he, "'here's a fellow who has led a jolly life today.' With his foot, he stirred Dom Claude, who held his breath. "'Dead drunk,' continued Jeon. "'Well, he is full. "'A regular leech dropped from a cask "'because he can suck no more. "'He is bald,' he added, stooping. "'He is an old man. "'Fortunate Senex. "'Fortunate old man.' "'Then Dom Claude heard him move off, saying, "'All the same, reason is a fine thing.' and my brother the archdeacon is very lucky to be both wise and rich. The archdeacon then rose and ran at full speed in the direction of Notre Dame, whose enormous towers rose before him in the darkness above the surrounding houses. When, quite breathless, he reached the square in front of the cathedral, he shrank back and dared not raise his eyes to the fatal building." "'Oh,' he said in a low tone, "'is it indeed true that such a thing can still have occurred here today, this very morning?' Still he ventured to look at the church. The front was dark. The sky behind it glittered with stars. The crescent moon, which had just risen above the horizon, had that instant paused at the summit of the right-hand tower, and seemed to have perched like a luminous bird on the edge of the railing, which was cut into black trefoils. The cloister door was closed, but the archdeacon always carried about him the key to the tower in which was his laboratory. He now used it to let himself into the church. Inside, all was gloomy and silent as the tomb. By the heavy shadows falling on all sides in broad masses, he knew that the hangings put up for the morning ceremonies had not yet been removed. The great silver cross gleamed through the darkness, dotted with sparkling points of light, like the Milky Way of this sepulchral night. The long choir windows showed the tops of their pointed arches above the black drapery, the panes traversed by a moonbeam wearing only the doubtful colors of the night a sort of violet, white, and blue, in tints which are found nowhere else save on the face of the dead. The archdeacon, seeing these pale points of arches all around the choir, fancied that he beheld the mitres of bishops who had been damned. He shut his eyes, and when he reopened them, he imagined that there was a circle of ashen faces gazing at him. He fled across the church, then it seemed to him that the church, too, moved, stirred, breathed, and lived, that each big column became a monstrous leg which pawed the ground with its broad stone hoof, and that the vast cathedral was only a sort of prodigious elephant which panted and trampled with pillars for feet, its two towers for tusks, and the immense black draperies for caparison. Thus his fever, or mania, 
had attained such a degree of intensity that the external world had ceased to be to the unfortunate man anything more than a sort of apocalypse, visible, tangible, terrifying. For one moment he was comforted. As he entered the aisles, he perceived, behind a group of pillars, a reddish light, towards which he hastened as towards a star. It was the poor lamp which burned day and night above the public breviary of Notre Dame, under its iron grating. He fell eagerly to reading the sacred book, in the hope of finding some consolation or some encouragement. The volume was open at this passage from Job, over which his fixed eye ran. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. On reading this melancholy passage, he felt as a blind man feels who is pricked by the staff which he has picked up. His knees gave way beneath him, and he sank to the ground, thinking of her who had that day perished. Such awful fumes rose up and penetrated his brain that it seemed to him as if his head had become one of the mouths of hell. He remained some time in this position, incapable of thought, crushed and powerless in the hand of the demon that possessed him. At last, some measure of strength returned to him. It occurred to him to take refuge in the tower with his faithful Quasimodo. He rose, and as he was frightened, he took to light his steps the lamp from the breviary. This was a sacrilege but he had ceased to heed such trifles. He slowly climbed the tower stairs, full of secret terror, which must have been shared by the few passers-by outside in the square, who saw the mysterious light of his lamp moving at that late hour from loophole to loophole to the top of the tower. All at once he felt a freshness upon his face, and found himself under the door of the uppermost gallery. The air was cold, the sky was overcast with clouds, whose large white masses encroached one upon the other, rounding the sharp corners, and looking like the breaking up of the ice in a river in winter. The crescent moon, stranded in the midst of the clouds, seemed a celestial ship caught fast among these icebergs of the air. He cast down his eyes and looked for a moment between the iron rails of the small columns which connect the two towers, far away, through a mist of fog and smoke, at the silent throng of the roofs of Paris, steep, numberless, crowded close together, and small as the waves of a calm sea on a summer's night. The moon shed a faint light which lent an ashen tint to both heaven and earth. At this moment the clock raised its shrill, cracked voice. It struck midnight. The priest's thoughts reverted to noonday. It was again twelve o'clock. Oh, he whispered, she must be cold by this time. Suddenly a blast of wind extinguished his lamp, and almost at the same instant he saw, at the opposite corner of the tower, a shadow something white, a figure, a woman. He trembled. By this woman's side 
was a little goat, which mingled its bleat with the final bleat of the bell. He had the courage to look at her. It was she. She was pale. She was sad. Her hair fell loosely over her shoulders, as in the morning, but there was no rope about her neck. Her hands were no longer bound. She was free. She was dead. She was dressed in white and had a white veil over her head. She came towards him slowly, looking up to heaven. The supernatural goat followed her. He felt as if turned to stone and too heavy to escape. At each step that she advanced, he took one backwards, and that was all. In this way, he retreated beneath the dark arch of the staircase. He was frozen with fear at the idea that she might perhaps follow him thither. Had she done so, he would have died of terror. She did indeed approach the staircase door, pause there for a few moments, look steadily into the darkness, but without appearing to see the priest, and pass on. She seemed to him taller than in life. He saw the moon through her white robes. He heard her breathe. When she had passed him, he began to descend the stairs with the same slow motion as the specter, imagining that he too was a specter. Haggard, his hair erect, his extinguished lamp still in his hand. And as he went down the spiral stairs, he distinctly heard in his ear a mocking voice, which repeated the words, A spirit passed before my face, the hair of my flesh stood up. Chapter 2 Deformed, Blind, Lame Every city in the Middle Ages, and up to the time of Louis Twelfth, every city in France, had its places of refuge, its sanctuaries. These places of refuge, amidst the deluge of penal laws and barbarous jurisdictions which flooded the city of Paris, were like so many islands rising above the level of human justice. Every criminal who landed there was saved. In each district, there were almost as many places of refuge as gallows. The abuse of a privilege went side by side with the abuse of punishment. Two bad things, each striving to correct the other. Royal palaces, princely mansions, and above all, churches, had the right of sanctuary. Sometimes an entire town which stood in need of repopulation was given the temporary right. Louis XI made Paris a sanctuary in 1467. Having once set foot within the sanctuary, the criminal was sacred. But let him beware how he ventured forth. One step outside his shelter plunged him again in the billows. The wheel, the gibbet, and the strapado kept close guard around the place of refuge, and watched their prey unceasingly, like sharks in a vessel's wake. Thus men have been known to grow gray in a convent, on a palace staircase, in abbey fields, under a church porch, so that the sanctuary became a prison in all save name. It sometimes happened that a solemn decree from Parliament violated the sanctuary and gave up the criminal to justice. 
but this occurrence was rare. The Parliament stood in some awe of the bishops, and when cowl and gown came into collision, the priest usually got the best of it. Sometimes, however, as in the matter of the assassins of Petit Jean, the Paris hangman, and in that of Emery Rousseau, Jean Valeray's murderer, justice overrode the church, and proceeded to carry out her sentences. But, without an order from Parliament, woe to him who violated any sanctuary by armed force. We know what fate befell Robert de Clermont, Marshal of France, and Jean de Chalon, Marshal of Champagne, and yet the case in question was merely that of one Perrin Marc, a money-changer's man, a miserable assassin. But the two marshals broke open the doors of Saint-Marie. Therein lay the crime. Such was the veneration felt for these refuges, that, as tradition goes, it occasionally extended even to animals. Aymoin relates that a stag chased by Dagobert, having taken refuge near the tomb of Saint-Denis, the pack stopped short, barking loudly. Churches had usually a cell prepared to receive suppliants. In 1407, Nicholas Flamel had built for them upon the arches of Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie a chamber which cost him four pounds six pence, sixteen Paris farthings. At Notre-Dame it was a cell built over the aisles under the flying buttresses on the very spot where the wife of the present keeper of the towers has made a garden, which compares with the hanging gardens of Babylon as a lettuce with a palm tree, or a porter's wife with Semiramis. It was here that Quasimodo had deposited Esmeralda, after his frantic and triumphal race through the towers and galleries. While that race lasted, the young girl did not recover her senses, half dozing, half waking, conscious only of being borne upward through the air, whether floating or flying, or lifted above the earth by some unknown power. From time to time she heard the noisy laughter, the harsh voice of Quasimodo in her ear. She half opened her eyes. Then beneath her she saw dimly all Paris, dotted with countless roofs of slate and tiles, like a red and blue mosaic. Above her head, the fearful, grinning face of Quasimodo. Her eyelids fell. She thought that all was over, that she had been hanged during her swoon, and that the misshapen spirit which ruled her destiny had again taken possession of her and carried her away. She dared not look at him, but yielded to his sway. But when the breathless and disheveled bell-ringer laid her down in the cell of refuge, when she felt his great hands gently untie the rope which bruised her arms, she experienced that sort of shock which wakens with a start the passengers on a ship that runs aground in the middle of a dark night. Her ideas woke, too, and returned to her one by one. She saw that she was still in Notre-Dame, she remembered being torn from the hangman's hands, that Phoebus lived, that Phoebus had ceased to love her. And these two ideas, one of which lent such bitterness to the other, presenting themselves simultaneously to the poor victim, she turned to Quasimodo, who stood before her and who terrified her, saying, Why did you save me? 
He looked anxiously at her, as if striving to guess what she said. She repeated her question. He gazed at her with profound sadness and fled. She was amazed. A few moments later, he returned, bringing a packet which he threw at her feet. It contained clothes left at the door of the church for her by charitable women. Then she looked down at herself, saw that she was almost naked, and blushed. Life had returned. Quasimodo appeared to feel something of her shame. He covered his eye with his broad hand, and again departed, but with lingering steps. She hastily dressed herself. The garments given her consisted of a white gown and veil, the dress of a novice at the Hotel Dieu, the great hospital managed by nuns. She had scarcely finished when Quasimodo returned. He carried a basket under one arm and a mattress under the other. In the basket were a bottle, a loaf of bread, and a few other provisions. He set the basket down and said, Eat. He spread the mattress on the floor and said, Sleep. It was his own food, his own bed, which the bell-ringer had brought. The gypsy lifted her eyes to his face to thank him, but she could not utter a word. The poor devil was hideous indeed. She hung her head with a shudder of fright. Then he said, I alarm you. I am very ugly, am I not? Do not look at me. Only listen to me. During the day, you must stay here. By night, you can walk anywhere about the church. But do not leave the church by day or night. You would be lost. They would kill you. And I should die. Moved by his words, she raised her head to reply. He had vanished. Alone once more, she pondered the strange words of this almost monstrous being, struck by the sound of his voice, which was so hoarse and yet so gentle. Then she examined her cell. It was a room of some six feet square, with a little dormer window and a door opening on the slightly sloping roof of flat stones. Various gutter spouts in the form of animals seemed bending over her and stretching their necks to look at her through the window. Beyond the roof she saw the tops of a thousand chimneys, from which issued the smoke of all the fires of Paris. A sad spectacle for the poor gypsy girl, a foundling, condemned to death, an unhappy creature, without a country, without a family, without a hearth. Just as the thought of her forlorn condition struck her more painfully than ever, she felt a hairy, bearded head rub against her hands and knees. She trembled. Everything frightened her now, and looked down. It was the poor goat, the nimble jolly, who had escaped with her when Quasimodo scattered Charmeleau's men, and who had been lavishing caresses on her feet for nearly an hour, without winning a glance. The gypsy girl covered her with kisses. "'Oh, Jolly,' said she, "'how could I forget you? "'But you never forget me. "'Oh, you at least are not ungrateful.' 
at the same time as if an invisible hand had lifted the weight which had so long held back her tears, she began to weep. And as her tears flowed, she felt the sharpest and bitterest of her grief going from her with them. When evening came, she thought the night so beautiful, the moon so soft, that she took a turn in the raised gallery which surrounds the church. She felt somewhat refreshed by it. The earth seemed to her so peaceful, viewed from that height. Chapter 3. Death Next morning she found on waking that she had slept. This strange fact amazed her. It was so long since she had slept. A bright beam from the rising sun came in at her window and shone in her face. With the sun she saw at the same window an object that alarmed her, the unhappy face of Quasimodo. Involuntarily she reclosed her eyes, but in vain. She still seemed to see through her rosy lids that one-eyed, gap-toothed, gnome-like face. Then, still keeping her eyes shut, she heard a rough voice say very kindly, "'Don't be frightened. I am your friend. I came to see if you are asleep. It does you no harm, does it, if I look at you when you are asleep? What does it matter to you if I am here when your eyes are shut? Now I will go. There, I have hidden myself behind the wall. You can open your eyes again.' The tone in which they were uttered was even more plaintive than the words themselves. The gypsy girl, touched by it, opened her eyes. He was no longer at the window. She went to it and saw the poor hunchback crouched in a corner of the wall, in a painful and submissive posture. She made an effort to overcome the aversion with which he inspired her. "'Come here,' said she, gently." From the motion of her lips, Quasimodo thought she was ordering him away. He therefore rose and retired, limping slowly, with hanging head, not daring to raise his despairing eye to the young girl's face. "'Do come!' she cried. But he still withdrew. Then she ran out of her cell, hurried after him, and took his arm. When he felt her touch, Quasimodo trembled in every limb. He raised his beseeching eye, and finding that she drew him towards her, his whole face beamed with tenderness and delight. She tried to make him enter her cell, but he persisted in remaining on the threshold. No, no, said he, the owl must not enter the lark's nest. Then she threw herself gracefully upon her bed, with the sleeping goat at her feet. For some moments both were motionless, silently contemplating, he so much grace, she so much ugliness. Every moment she discovered some additional deformity in Quasimodo. Her gaze roved from his knock knees to his humped back, from his humped back to his single eye. She could not understand why a being so imperfectly planned should continue to exist. But withal, there was so much melancholy and so much gentleness about him that she began to be reconciled to it. He was the first to break the silence. Did you tell me to come back? 
She nodded her head as she said, yes. He understood her nod. Alas, said he, as if loath to go on. I am, I am deaf. Poor fellow, cried the gypsy with a look of kindly pity. He smiled sadly. You think that I only lacked that, don't you? Yes, I am deaf. That's the way I was made. It is horrible, isn't it? And you, you are so beautiful. There was so profound a sense of his misery in the poor wretch's tone that she had not the strength to say a word. Besides, he would not have heard her. He added, I never realized my ugliness till now. When I compare myself with you, I pity myself indeed, poor unhappy monster that I am. I must seem to you like some awful beast, eh? You, you are a sunbeam, a drop of dew, a bird's song. As for me, I am something frightful, neither man nor beast, a nondescript object, more hard, shapeless, and more trodden underfoot than a pebble. Then he began to laugh, and that laugh was the most heart-rending thing on earth. He continued, Yes, I am deaf, but you can speak to me by gestures, by signs. I have a master who talks with me in that way. And then I shall soon know your wishes from the motion of your lips and your expression. Well, she replied, smiling, tell me why you saved me. He watched her attentively as she spoke. I understand, he answered. You ask me why I saved you. You have forgotten a villain who tried to carry you off one night, a villain to whom the very next day you brought relief upon their infamous pillory. A drop of water and a little pity are more than my whole life can ever repay. You have forgotten that villain, but he remembers. She listened with deep emotion. A tear sparkled in the bell-ringer's eye, but it did not fall. He seemed to make it a point of honor to repress it. Listen, he resumed, when he no longer feared lest that tear should flow. We have very tall towers here. A man who fell from them would be dead long before he touched the pavement. Whenever it would please you to have me fall, you need not even say a single word. One glance will be enough. Then he rose. This peculiar being, unhappy though the gypsy was, yet roused a feeling of compassion in her heart. She signed him to stay. No, no, said he, I must not stay too long. I am not at my ease. It is out of pity that you do not turn away your eyes. I will go where I can see you without your seeing me. That will be better. He drew from his pocket a small metal whistle. There, said he, when you need me, when you wish me to come to you, when I do not horrify you too much, whistle with this. I hear that sound. He laid the whistle on the ground and fled. <laughs>